and welcome to a new episode of Startup Diaries. In today's episode, we've got Brett Shanley, who's the CEO and founder of Noma. Noma is a finance solution and marketplace for digital courses. In this episode, Brett talks us through his investment banking background and how this really influenced the Noma culture itself. Hint, it's very, very different. He also talks us through him returning from Australia, where he'd already built a business to build Noma in the UK and how he went about building his network and making connections. He talks us through being a non-tech founder and how he's gone around hiring tech talent. And then finally, he digs into open banking and how it's really going to make changes to our decision-making for our future careers through our education. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Brett. Thanks for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me along. Cool. Do you you want to start off by telling us a bit about yourself and the story behind Noma? Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, my business is called Noma, which stands for the knowledge market, and I guess quickly on on myself before I dive too deep into that. I'm 34 years of age, kind of collecting a few grey hairs as I go. Um, Started my career in investment banking, so I'd be up at work, um, up for work at 4.15 in the morning to be in work for 5.15 to then stare at eight computer screens with lines going up, lines going down. Learned loads, but I fundamentally learned what I didn't want for my career, and that was essentially watching lines go up and down where I had no impact, no control, um, on these massive billion dollar businesses. Long story short, left banking pretty early before I got the, the golden handcuffs and decided that I wanted to go into smaller scale business where hopefully I could have a positive impact and deliver kind of meaning to customers and, and have a purpose. Mm. So kind of that, that story took me nearly seven years to kind of get to where we are now. And that led me into Noma, which provides ethical finance for for education in in the most simplistic form. Perfect. So obviously you've referenced there the, the the time in which you spent in investment banking. Obviously one of the things when we were putting this together was really learning about the culture that you built at Noma. Has that had an impact on it? You know, coming from that, uh, I guess that yeah, very uh, well as you said early early start grinding throughout the day. Has that had what you've tried to build here been the opposite end of that spectrum? What have you kind of done? So, look, investment banking, I think, you know, there's a purpose for it, there's a need for it, and, you know, there are good things about it and bad things about it from from a culture perspective, and certainly, you know, people work bloody hard, and I Mm. think they are intelligent and motivated, driven individuals. Mm. So that element of what I experienced firsthand whilst working in in that industry, I I absolutely try to bring to Mm. the business. But on the flip side of that, I am also trying to have a more egalitarian, fair, friendly office place where it's flexible, you wear what you want. Uh, We have a hybrid approach that people can come to the office when they want or they can work from home. So, you know, we are a small business. I try to treat everyone with dignity, care and respect. And that's Mm. something that I would like to maintain, even if this business stays at 16 employees or goes to 600 employees. Mm. I think, you know, culture is absolutely critical. Yeah. Do you want to give a bit about up sort of how you've built that out then? Is there anything in particular that you think you've done to help establish that culture? Obviously, you spoke about flexibility. It sounds like you're empowering your employees a little bit there as well. Yeah. And you know, I won't delve too deep into kind of firsthand experience. That's probably one to be uh, shared over a beer or two when talking about kind of the days of, of banking. You know, we are lucky enough that I'm in a position where I get to formulate my own team, mm-hmm. our own culture, our own product. So, yeah, it very much is about empowering people and hiring people that can come into the role and and hopefully drive that department or that area Mm. um, further along. And I think rather than me bearing down on them saying this is what needs to be done, it's more of 
you tell me what the next steps are and advise me. And I guess that's one of the amazing things about the role and the position I'm in, in that I'm surrounded by people that are way smarter, way more talented than what I am and have far more knowledge in the the, the area that they're delivering on. So it's very much about kind of making sure that I'm I'm the composer, I'm the I'm the I'm the, the conductor, where then the key kind of parts of the orchestra then play in time. Obviously, just going back to your time again in the, in the investment banking side of things, you've worked for some bigger corporate organisations. You've obviously then, um, it's not there, gone around and then started Noma. Had you always wanted to be an entrepreneur? Because often, you know, going to a big corporate organisation, you've got a career, you've got a goal, you've got maybe a, a, a ladder to cr- climb, and then you've plunged into this world I mean was it something you've always wanted to do uh, I think it was always in the back of my mind and there was always a desire that I wanted to try and create something something that I could look back on and say I didn't just have a job that paid me x amount that I did for x number of years that hopefully I did something that a I believed in b I was passionate about and and free was kind of delivering something positive to our customers and partners so I guess as I went down that pathway of leaving a big stable corporate job mm. where you know you can earn a lot of money and you can do that for your career, I guess the further I went down the rabbit hole of startups where looking at new business ideas, new, looking at new revenue models, new industries, I got more and more excited by that. And I guess as I got closer to people that had taken that leap, the, the itch got bigger <laughs> to, the po- to the point in which it was not just an itch, it was, it was a, a compulsion that had to be done. Mm-hmm. Perfect. I think one one of the things that we uh, sort of to do with the the product itself, you you, you spoke to me when we were preparing this about open banking. Um, do you want to give us some context to, to the product, and then tell us a bit about how uh, open what you know exactly what open banking is and how it's helping you and customers? Absolutely. So I guess recap on Noma. So yeah, we offer an ethical finance solution. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? Well, we work with leading technology education providers. So that could be anything from a coding boot camp such as Ironhack to Wild Code School, North Coders up in Manchester to then bigger organisations such as in, in, uh, Imperial Business School, uh, MIT in America. Oh, wow. So they are delivering courses that can be anything from UX to data science to cybersecurity, like areas that are in demand and are delivering students with hard skill sets that can immediately give them an entry into a career mm-hmm. or, or a step up on, on the career ladder. Yeah. So we partner with these leading educational institutions to provide their students with a form of payment mm-hmm. whereby they're not having to pay up front, they're not having to take out expensive interest-bearing products. So Noma uses modern technology to allow students at the point of sale to spread the cost of that course, interest and fee-free, mm-hmm. over a 12-month period. Mm-hmm. We instead make our money by charging our partners, in this right. case the educational institutions, a merchant fee um, so they essentially take a haircut on the cost of the course mm-hmm. they're happy to do so because it drives additional enrolments and drives their bottom line so our process takes about a minute for the student to apply on the partner mm-hmm. website and that's underpinned by a number of data sources through APIs mm-hmm. now one of those major data sources is open banking yeah. now open banking for those of you who have kind of had the head in the sand for the last three and a bit years four years now Um, is a piece of legislation that was mandated here in the UK and across the EU with the likes of Australia soon to follow suit. And essentially what it does is it forces all of the major banks and financial institutions to open up the data on individual customers. Now, that's done in a secure and rigorous way, but it allows 
customers to apply for credit and finance from other institutions other than who they bank with, which is ultimately good for the consumer because it introduces more competition. Mm -hmm. And it also allows for businesses such as myself to process applications within seconds rather than having to manually eyeball pay slips, manually eyeball banking statements that quite frankly could be doctored using um, like Adobe InDesign or Photoshop. So Mm -hmm. not only is it fast, but it's also way more secure. Mm -hmm. So as a lender, it allows us to do a couple of things. One, verify someone's income. Mm -hmm. Two, actually look at their expenditure and ultimately ascertain what their net monthly disposable income is. Mm -hmm. So we use it in the most simplest form at the moment for affordability when undertaking kind of the decision on an application. Mm -hmm. However, where it's now getting super exciting and where I see the future of our business being is being so much more than just a finance solution. That doesn't fully motivate me. We're here to be more than just a dumb finance solution. We're here because we believe in education and we believe in the power of education to transform people's lives. So with open banking, yes, we use it for the affordability, but in the not too distant future, we will be using it where we can see what someone's wage is pre a course. And then we can also start to use open banking to track what someone's wage does post the course. So mm-hmm. six months out, 12 months out, 24 months out. Mm-hmm. And what we'd like to be able to do is combine that with other sources of data, including the likes of LinkedIn. So similar to the open banking data, we can then see what someone's job title is, what their sector that they work in, prior history of employment is, what their prior educational attainment is. And again, like the banking data, track that pre and post the course. Mm-hmm. And by combining both the open banking data with the LinkedIn data, it allow us, allows us to really start to have a deep view on what impact a piece of education has on someone's future earning prospects and career prospects. Yeah. That in itself is transformative in that we can then start to use that information to advise future people that look, smell and taste like historical students mm-hmm. to ensure that they are placing their time, energy and money into courses that are truly impactful for them, not just the generalist kind of person out there. See, that that to me really interests me because I think about going back to doing, you know, picking university, picking a degree. I didn't know all what to do. I was just good at science. I was book smart. So I would have been, it would have been fascinating if you could put that into universities and then be able to roll out going. If you were to do, you know, I did biochemistry. But if you did biochemistry at University of Manchester, the average person will go on to earn X amount. That would be to line them all up and then probably get a true rating of a university would be quite a fascinating outcome to, to be able to read through, really. A hundred percent. And this is where, though, I don't mean to just challenge you on that statement but I guess I'm about to in that education and adult-led education is so much more than just about going to university mm-hmm. and you know who is the biggest influencer in our lives mm-hmm. is, is parents and teachers mm-hmm. what do they tell us to do to go to university now that may have been true back in the 80s and the 90s mm-hmm. and I'm not here saying today don't go to university yeah. I'm just saying be aware that it now costs a hell of a lot more than what it used to do. And it doesn't necessarily guarantee the the graduate premiums Mm. it once did. So I believe the way in which technology is now impacting the world of work, the days of having one career off the back of a degree are over. We're Mm -hmm. all living longer. We are having multiple careers and we're going to be having to work longer on multiple careers, which means we're going to have to reskill in a continual manner to make sure that we're keeping up to date with modern skills for a modern economy. Mm -hmm. Now, that can't just be about someone doing a degree in their early 20s. It has to be a continual process. And that's what super excites me about this in that 
we're all about trying to upskill and reskill people regardless of age, sector or seniority. Yeah. So yes, universities are a part of that picture, but there's mm. a much, much bigger ecosystem out there. Yeah. Well, one of my mates has literally just completed North Coders, which you referenced earlier, and he's yeah. actually just as of went today, or well, second day, he started yesterday when this was recorded. Um, at one of our actual pre- previous podcast to- uh, guests in Beauty Bay, is a you know he was a supply chain manager okay. at a pharmaceuticals business, and now he's software engineer at the you know at Beauty Bay. A complete you know he's thirty four as well. Complete turnaround, and it's something he wanted to do, but didn't get chance to do really at university or earlier in his career. It's just something he was then coincidentally timed something came about and he was able to jump on it i don't know if you use your funding actually i've never asked so it'll be quite interesting to, to see when i get home uh, i'll drop him a message but, but you're absolutely right there and that's what kind of excites me that you know when i was at university i i matriculated in 2007 graduated 2010 mm. like startups weren't really a thing vc money wasn't as prevalent mm-hmm. so you know we were told to go be a lawyer a doctor a banker a dentist like they're stable yeah. jobs but you know when you look at things like social media and the impact that's had on marketing growth it you know there are jobs now that exist that simply didn't even exist 10 years ago yeah. and i think that will be even truer in 5 10 15 20 years so you know with that means people are going to have to reskill and retrain and I, I think you know just because you did a degree at 18 doesn't mean you should be set and wedded to one particular industry or career yeah no, I completely agree. I think it's a good point. I haven't really thought about it in that sense, the amount of people who will be, you know, in fact, we are living longer. And people aren't always happy with the first thing they choose. They, they kind of teach you that it will be kind of your destination and that will be you for life, right? Um, one of the things I want to do- jump into, though, is, uh, and I think we maybe skipped it in, your, in the introduction. I know you spent some time out in Australia and then you came back to the UK did, yes. and then started Noma. You've obviously gone out, spent time out in Australia, come back and... You've ultimately, I guess, to an extent, had to build your network here while starting a new business out from scratch. So I'd love to know how you've kind of gone about, yeah, building the business, networking and getting yourself about out there, really. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. I spent seven glorious years in Australia, of which I absolutely love the place. So for any Australians out there, I, I consider myself to be half Australian now, despite my accent. Um, and... Do not regret that. But at the time, a lot of people were like, you're crazy. You're going to like derail your career. You're going to the other side of the world. But I guess the couple of things that I learned there was number one, give it a go. Mm -hmm. And that is like the most Aussie kind of saying that you, you, you hear all the time. And, you know, I'd come across people in Australia that were starting businesses with absolutely no experience. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they were going at it with a completely different point of view, with a completely different set of experiences meant that they actually looked at problems in a very different way mm-hmm. and often actually stumbled across amazing solutions. Mm-hmm. So that that gave me the confidence to want to start a business and, and to say, well, bloody hell, if that person can, then I absolutely can. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right, when I did come back to the UK, it was, it was a big and a hard decision. And I found that in many respects, the UK was still slightly backwards in a way in that we seemed to be more conservative. We didn't you know, a lot of my friends I look at are still climbing the greasy corporate pole. So, you know, I did find myself after seven years having an amazing network in Australia to then come back to the UK with very little established network in the UK. But I guess the difference between when I left and when I returned was the startup scene had just exploded. Mm-hmm. So the number of meetups you can go to now, the number of VCs that exi- exist, um, you know, the number of like communities that exist. So I very much 
have tapped into that where I can. Now, if you wanted to go to a meetup every single day, you could. Mm -hmm. So you, we can. So you've got to be kind of selective about that. And I think tools like LinkedIn are an amazing, amazing platform. And I guess I'm prolific on that, where if I see someone that's doing something interesting or that's relevant to me, I'll message them. And I very much come with the attitude, if you don't ask, you don't get. Mm -hmm. And I guess a lot of founders out there have been in the same place as you, been in the same boat, and nine times out of ten, are happy to help you out. Yeah. So that was kind of a real lesson that actually just getting out there, speaking to people, asking people, just each door opens 10 more doors, so keep mm. opening the doors. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I think I completely agree with that. I think we, we, you've got to just put yourself out there, right? Just give it, as you said, give it a go. Uh, I think that's a great shout. When uh, we were again putting this podcast together, one of the things that you were sort of talking about in the journey of the, of the business was kind of going out and looking to, to take on investment or, or debt, especially when you've got as a product, no users, no real employees uh, or contacts. How did you, cons you know, combat that challenge and how would you do anything different in hindsight? So despite coming back to the UK after seven years and having quite a minimal network mm. in, in the startup scene, I had one advantage and that advantage was that I built a lending business in Australia. Mm -hmm. So I had experience of raising money from venture capital. I had experience from raising money from family offices so I knew what it took to put together a pitch deck I knew yeah. what would be required from the tech stack what components would need to be bolted together mm -hmm. to be able to deliver an MVP I also knew how to put together like the first version of the financial model and I think you know having some experience of raising equity and debt and having built a lending business previously massively helped me yeah. so I was quite fortunate that within literally two months of being back in the UK, I managed to get a small check size from Global Founders Capital. And that was what allowed me to then be more than just a bloke with a deck and a laptop. Um, but, you know, for anyone out there, I think enthusiasm does take you a long way. Mm -hmm. But if you combine that with a bit of experience, then it takes you even further. So, you know, I did come back to the UK thinking second time round, it's going to be easier but, uh, but in some respects like some challenges which were smooth the first time round actually happened to be harder the second time round so there's no secret source to this mm -hmm. um it's it's about just banging your head against the brick wall and not giving up yeah oh that's fair that's fair i think with we'd love to ask you then with the fact that you i guess admittedly would see yourself as a non-technical founder but you've gone and hired technical people for your team how do you go about making the first one and obviously as a recruiter it's something that i'd be keen to, to so, learn Great question. And I said to myself, second time round, I was not going to be a solo founder. Here I am as a solo founder. I said second time round, I was going to have a co-founder that was technical. Um, and I broke both of those rules. And I guess if and when I go again, I will be not going as a solo founder and I will be having a technical founder. But I guess it came down for a couple of, well, a couple of things happened for me in that I managed to raise some VC money pretty early on. Mm -hmm. So it was... Do I take the money or do I not? Do I go out and search for other technical founders? And I think in the end, I just came to the conclusion, let's just get going. We'll figure it out as we go. Um, for other non-technical founders out there or people that are thinking about founding a business, I would recommend Entrepreneur First. So they will pay you for a period of time to go and almost like speed date other founders. Mm -hmm. The big difference is 80% of their founders are technical. Right. So had I not received the money so early on, I would have gone through that program. And you know maybe I'd be sitting here with a technical co-founder, but I 
it is a very difficult one because the, the most expensive part of building a technology business, no shit, yeah. <laughs> is, is the technical team. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was difficult. Um, and, you know, we certainly had some full starts. But again, I had a bit of a kind of a secret spade up my or trick up my, my, my sleeve in that I'd worked with a team of developers from Calcutta in India right. that specialize in the CRM and the loan, the loan management system that I'd used previously. So there was some continuity there that mm. I wasn't completely alone, that I knew that there were some developers that I trusted had yeah. worked with for a long time that I could go again. But it's it's difficult and I guess you've got to learn how to try and small smell bullshit when, when it's being kind of shoveled down your throat, yeah. which is not easy. Um, but, you know, as you start to scale and hopefully raise more funds, you can obviously then start to scale up the team, which hopefully means you've got people that truly do know what they're doing and can kind of point it out. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks for that. I mean, with, with the two final questions as well we, we always ask, um, we throw to, 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 to founders in particular, would be first one is, do you want to talk through the biggest challenge of your career and be able to give some, some insight to, I guess, how you overcame it? Yeah, uh, there's been so many challenges and that's where if you're starting a business, the one thing you've got to get comfortable at doing is taking on challenges head on. And mm-hmm. sometimes those challenges will be, feel so insurmountable that you're like, why am I even bothering? Mm. And, you know, you, you solve one problem and then 10 more kind of present themselves. Um, I guess as a lending business, and you already kind of touched on this, raising debt is really hard, particularly when you're a brand new lending business that has no customers, no partners, you've got potentially some new systems that are untested. Mm-hmm. You've got no seasonality or performance of the data to prove that if a debt facility is given to you, that you will be able to use that debt facility responsibly, i.e. lend that out and then get that money back in the door without it kind of defaulting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is really tricky. And you know that takes a certain level of, of organization that is prepared to actually take that sort of risk because it is super risky, right? In mm-hmm. that the biggest risk with lending business is that you don't actually get the rules right and that the money you lend doesn't come back. So that was challenging. But again, I guess because I'd managed to do it in Australia, mm-hmm. it gave me the confidence that I could do it. I guess, you know, a challenge that no doubt everyone's faced and one that I certainly didn't see coming was COVID. Yeah. And so we as a business had raised a bit of money. We were about to go live as COVID hit. And that, that was pretty challenging times where mm-hmm. we had no real view or certainty on whether the business was going to see it through. Yeah. And that, that you know, I'm, I'm on reflection probably had it quite easy compared to a lot of people, but that was that was certainly kind of one of the more challenging, difficult times. And sometimes it's, I found about taking a deep breath, meditating and actually just trying to focus rather than on the bigger picture on kind of the things that you can fix today and, mm. and chipping away at those micro kind of, jobs or battles yeah. and hopefully every little kind of step forward adds up to massive leaps leaps forward eventually yeah not in a rush to go back to those days of uh, t- early 2020 that was uh, no yeah no. that was a weird and wonderful time but there we go and the final question that we're throwing out to you is you know if you're you obviously mentioned having the itch if there's someone listening who's got that entrepreneurial itch or compulsion is there any advice that you give to them uh, in how to to go about setting up really yeah, absolutely. And look, I, I guess my number one kind of message is go for it, but go for it with your eyes open. Um, if you're going into it thinking this is going to be some sort of glamorous kind of career, then 
you know, I'd maybe kind of take a step back and ha- have a bit of a think in that, you know, even at 16 people and counting, I still sometimes consider myself to be the chief admin officer in that I do the jobs that no one else wants to do or can do, um, which, you know, isn't always fun. Um, but, you know, do your research. I think don't just jump headfirst into a business or an industry, speak to people. You'll be amazed at the number of people that try to start a business without actually doing research or consulting with people that are actually in the industry. Mm-hmm. And I think the number one thing that you've got to really be able to hone in and define is the problem. There's no point kind of creating a solution that there is no problem. Mm-hmm. You've got to find the problem and then try and identify the solution to that problem. Mm-hmm. Without that problem, you kind of really don't have much of a uh, a kind of a, a point to aim for. So defining that problem and cre- clearly defining the problem, speaking to individuals that are closely linked to the problem to then sort out and, and figure out the solution, I think is is the absolute fundamentals. From there, then it's about kind of working out, well, how, how do I get this thing live if I have a problem and I think I have a solution what team do I need what funding do I need how do I go about doing this and I guess one of the the most amazing books I've ever read was the business canvas matrix mm-hmm. which you know for anyone that's looking to start a business would would recommend it's it's been co-authored by 2000 founders and it looks at business models and how you can create disruptive business models that truly are trying to do something different so yeah. that is fundamental reading for anyone starting a business Perfect. So yeah, I always like it when people debunk the fact that it's not a yeah, it's not a glamorous role. You know, no matter what LinkedIn says and how people try to depict their role, it is a you know, it's a grind. It's hard work. It's odd hours. It's probably stressing at times of the night which you don't want to be and you want to be asleep. But I really appreciate your honesty around that. It makes a hopefully a big difference to those listening. Absolutely. Thanks for questions. No worries. Well, look, pleasure. Thanks for being a part of this, Brett. And uh, yeah, uh, if anyone wants to, to reach out to him, you're on LinkedIn. I'm sure people can get in touch and learn more about Noma. Uh, and if anyone who's listening wants to send any questions in or get in touch about the podcast, um, please do reach out uh, to me at Chris McGowan. I'm on LinkedIn as well under Ben Sheehan. And for any anyone out there that is listening to this thinking, God, I do want to change my career. I want to kind of upskill or reskill or move into a different industry. And you're like, how do I pay for that? Then, yeah, come to us. We're ethical. We don't charge interest. We don't charge fees. We'd love to support you. Perfect. There we go. 